And if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we have been walking through the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings. And this morning we're going to um, pick it up halfway through Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get ready to turn there. Uh, we're about to read that together. But before we do, we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to bless this time. Because supernatural things need to happen in this moment. We need to understand things that we can't understand without God's help. So we're going to ask God to speak to us today. So let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning in the name of Jesus. God, we thank You, Lord, for reminding us already, God, of what You have done for us in Christ. And Jesus, we worship You today. We worship You as a glorious Savior and we praise You, God, that You have saved us. You have covered us, Lord, with Your righteousness through the work of Christ. And Jesus, we bless You this morning. We are Your redeemed ones in this world, called out of wickedness, Lord, and called out of darkness. And we worship You, Christ. We love You, Lord. God, we pray this morning that You would reveal Yourself to us. And God, I pray for Your church today that You would... You would remind us of who You are and that You would take us deeper and deeper into our knowledge of You, Lord. Reveal Your nature to us this morning. Reveal Your character. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would exalt Christ in our midst, that You would give Him the place of supremacy in this meeting, in our hearts and in our minds, God, that You would cause us to lift our eyes to the heavens, Lord, and to remember where our help comes from and to remember the glorious grace that You have poured out on us in Jesus. God, we pray that You would give each person exactly what they need from Your Word this morning. We ask You to do this, Lord. Extend Your faithfulness to us in Christ. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. And we're about to read a chunk this morning together, 8 through verse 21. And I want everybody that has a Bible, I want you to get your eyes on these words. Because we're about to read this, and then we're about to explain it. And this is the most important thing that you're going to hear. Because we're about to read God's Word from God's mouth. I'm going to read it, but He's going to say it to us. And so let's read it together, starting in verse 8. This is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Alright, we're going to take a second before we dive into this passage and we're going to try to draw some straight line connections of why Genesis 3 matters to your life. So why, why should we perk up in the next few minutes? And, and I'm going to try to draw as many connections as I can. This matters, okay? Last week, Ryan taught us on the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 3. And this was, this was the story of man and woman's sin. This was the story of sin's entrance into the world. Okay? And mockers in our generation say things like, you know, I, I, really, don't get, I really don't get this. I don't, I don't understand what the big deal is here. They ate a piece of fruit. So what? So what? Okay? This story is about more than a piece of fruit. This story is about rebellion against God. Okay? You have to see that. You have to see the nature of sin in Genesis chapter 3. This is a story of rebellion. This is like an insurrection in the Garden of Eden. And, and this is full out rebellion. It's a treason plot against God the King. Okay, And just like modern day man, this still happens today. The man and the woman, they thought they were over God's word. And so they rebel against God. This still happens. Okay, They reach out for autonomy and they attempt to dethrone the king of glory. They tried to kick him off the throne of their life. Genesis chapter 3 is not about a piece of fruit. It's about a wicked rebellion against God. Instead of autonomy, we'll just back up for, for just a minute. Instead of autonomy that they hope to attain, the man and the woman commit spiritual suicide when they sin against God. And you say, what do you mean? Why does this matter to us? Because the moment that they sin... Death enters into this world. Listen to Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So I want to warn you today, that you would be careful not to listen to this familiar story like a casual observer. Oh, that's, that's a fine piece of history. This story matters to your life. This story matters to every human being on planet earth. Because what happened to Adam was passed down to us. Listen close. Romans 5 verse 19. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Then listen to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. Real simple. In Adam all die. When Adam sinned, the entire human race was plunged into death. This matters to your life. Because of Genesis chapter 3, every baby that's born on planet earth is born a sinner dead in sin. Okay, This, this story in Genesis 3 is the beginning of the story of sin. And this is foundational for the gospel. 
You cannot come to a saving knowledge of Jesus unless you believe right things about sin because Jesus is the Savior of sin. That means you cannot be a Christian. Listen close. You cannot be a Christian with false ideas of sin. It is a wicked rebellion against God. So we all need this. This is foundational to our understanding of Christ. So what happened to Adam is passed down to us in Genesis 3 is the beginning of the story of sin. This is where everything goes wrong. I, rem- I was thinking about this just a second ago, and I, I remember something that happened about 10 years ago. Me and Ryan were sitting around, and we were talking with a couple of, a couple of friends, and I don't remember the details of even, even who all was there, but we were at his house, and we were having this conversation about, you know, if you could be anywhere in the Bible, if you could see just one thing in the Bible, where would you, what would you see? What would you want to see? And, you know, we went around talking, and people were talking about, you know, I, I'd want to see... Uh, that angel shut the mouth of the lion in, 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 in this den with, with the prophet Daniel. And somebody says, you know, I want to see the Lord Jesus on His cross bearing the, the wrath of, of sinful humanity. Or I'd want to see that Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured in, in, in front of His disciples. Stuff like that. Just, just, just places that we long to see these things. When God passes by Moses and proclaims His glorious name. Just want to see the glory of God, and then, and then you know this is a, this is a joke, but it touches on something re- really, really uh, fundamental for us. And Ryan's dad walks past this conversation in the middle of his living room. He says, "You know, I don't know about y'all, but I I'd want to be in the Garden of Eden and slap that fruit out of Adam and Eve's hand and say, y'all are about to wreck the world. What do you think you're doing?'" <laughs> so that joke touches on this, right? Like if we fix that problem, we fix everything. Okay. And so, this is the beginning of the story of sin. And we, you know, just, just realistically, we have, no, we have no power to rewrite this history. So we can't, we can't stop it from happening because it's already happened. But what is God's answer to this problem? Okay, Because if this problem is fixed, all, all problems that follow are fixed. This is the story of sin. But Genesis 3 is more than the beginning of sin. This is God's answer to the problem. It's also the beginning of God's salvation. And, and this is what I want to encourage you with this morning. Okay, This is maybe the less known part of Genesis chapter 3. It's the beginning of God's salvation. As soon as sin enters the world, God begins to unveil His rescue operation. In the Garden of Eden, moments after sin enters in, He begins to throw light on this glorious plan of salvation. And so Genesis chapter 3 shows us who God is. And it's like this simultaneous picture that we see roll throughout the entire Bible is that the God of Scripture, He is God the righteous judge who certainly will, will punish sin. And at the same time, He is the God of all grace that pursues sinful humanity. He's both of these in Genesis chapter 3. The rest of the Bible is going to pick up on this story of God's redemption. And from here on out, from here on out, from Genesis 3 on, human history is, is going to become the story of God pursuing sinful humanity. This, this passage today is going to show us about God. Okay, It's going to show us who God is. We're going to see His immediate response to sin. What does the God of the Bible think about sin and how does He respond to sin? We're going to see that today. 
And here's my aim for you. Every, every person in this room today, here's my aim. I long that you would know this God more and more and more. I long that you would know Him. And I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to you. I long for you to know your God more and more and more. This deep, rich knowledge of God where you walk with Him and you know Him in this world. I long for that. I want you to know the God the righteous judge and God, God the Redeemer through this passage today. And if you're here today and you're outside Christ, I long for you to know this God. I long for you to know this God. You're about to get a glimpse of the God of Scripture. I want us to know His nature and His character. He is righteous and He is full of grace. I want us to know His hatred of sin. And I want us to know His love for us and His grace that He has poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And so more than anything else today, you want to know what we're going after? I'll tell you at the very beginning. I want us to know God. I want us to know Him as He has revealed Himself in the Garden of Eden. So I want us to start with verse 8. I'm going to call this the confrontation. Sin has, immediate, sin, sin has entered into the world and this is God's immediate response. The confrontation in verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So who is the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is the God that immediately confronts sinners. And I want us to pause for just a second and get some bearings here. He immediately confronts sinners. I want to show us three things that happen instantaneously to the man and the woman the moment that they sin against God. Three things in Genesis chapter 3. The first is guilt. The second is shame. And the third is fear. As soon as they sin against God, in a nanosecond, guilt, shame, and fear. So I want you to look back at verse 7. In verse 7, immediately after their sin, verse 7 tells us that the man and the woman knew something. You see that in verse 7? The word know. So some, knowledge immediately followed sin, and they knew something. Okay, Something went wrong, and they knew that something had went wrong with themselves. They now had a new knowledge of sin and of evil. But it was not as pretty as Satan made it sound like in his temptation. He made it sound like that they were about to be like God and that they were going to know sin and that they were going to know evil and good. But now their eyes are open immediately after sin and they have this knowledge of sin. But it's not like they thought it was going to be. They don't know sin like God knows sin. They know sin like a stage 4 cancer patient knows cancer. They have it. They are shot through with it. They are literally infected with evil. That's not, that's, that wasn't part of the temptation, was it? And so when their eyes were opened, they knew sin, but in a really different way than what they expected. They knew that something had gone wrong within themselves. And we know from the rest of the Word of God, Romans chapter 1, that, that God created man with this conscience. And the moment that they sinned against God, their conscience, like a tornado siren, began screaming in their hearts and in their minds, you are a sinner. You have broken God's law. You are guilty. Guilty. First response. First effect of sin. And this guilt leads to shame in verse 8. Adam and the woman, they, they, not only did they know something intellectually had gone wrong with themselves, they felt something in the core of their being. They felt shame. They felt nakedness. 
they felt like they were unfit and unclean for the presence of God. They knew something was wrong with themselves and they felt dirty before God. So what did they do? They reached out for fig leaves. Remember that? In the story, and they tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover their nakedness with these fig leaves. And guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't take away that sense of dirtiness, that sense of filthiness before God. How do we know? Because what did they do? They're wearing leaves, but they run and hide because the leaves aren't cutting it. They're not satisfying the conscience. And so here you see it. As soon as they sin, they fall into guilt and shame. And I want you to pay careful attention to what happens next. They're in guilt and shame and God forces a meeting with the sinner. Okay? They're hiding from the God of the Bible. God won't allow it. He forces this encounter and He forces this meeting with the man and the woman. And as He approaches, okay, as the Lord God approaches the man and the woman, these sinners are now experiencing sheer terror and fear. They, they have been in God's presence before. They have heard God speak to them directly before, but not like this. Okay, They are now experiencing the presence of the Holy One in a new way. They've never felt it like this. They've never experienced this like this. This is the first glimpse in the Bible of a sinner being in the presence of a holy God. And what do we know about it? We know that they are terrified. And that, that, that fear has struck them. And they are full of fear in the presence of God. So, if the presence of God for us as believers is infinite joy, fullness of joy in His presence, for the wicked it is infinite terror. Okay, And they have shifted from paradise to being terrified in God's holy presence. So I want you to try to imagine this in your mind. I want you to try to imagine the man and the woman covered in moral filth in the presence of perfect holiness, in the presence of perfect righteousness. And they felt dirty. And they were terrified of this God. They were terrified of the consequences of their sin. Now, if you were to chase this theme out in the rest of the Bible, of, of what does sinful humanity do in the presence of holy God? Okay, This is a common theme in the Bible, this theme of hiding, this theme of fear in His presence. It's like a reflex. Okay, I want to read you a verse in Revelation 6. Revelation 6, 15-17. Listen close. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Genesis to Revelation. Sinners, they are consumed with terror in the presence of the God of the Bible. They would rather be crushed by rocks than to stand in His presence. Do you see this? This is a reflex. Okay, I want you to, I want you to know that. This is a reflex of sinful humanity. And what I mean by that... You, if this happens to you, you will not have to remind yourself. Self, oh yeah, you're supposed to be terrified right now. You won't have to preach that to yourself. It's a reflex. Okay, 
Just like if you if you're a hunter in the room and you and you've been out in the woods in the middle of a thunderstorm and you're trying to get back to your truck and you got to run across this clearing and all of a sudden lightning begins to pop about 30 feet away from you. You don't say in that moment, "Oh, my heart rate should really re- go berserk right now and I should really be a little bit terrified." Your heart begins to explode and the hair on the back of your neck begins to stand up, right? You have to remind yourself of anything. Or maybe you've almost been in a car wreck before, like me. And you, you know, somebody swerves in front of you, or you slam on the brakes, and you're thinking in that moment, I got this distance, but I don't know if that's enough to stop. And what happens in me, I don't know if it happens to you, but it feels like all the weight in my body goes to the soles of my feet. And I don't have to remind myself of anything. You should be terrified right now. It's a reflex. It's a reflex. And the reflex of sinners in the presence of of the holy, holy, holy God is sheer terror. Sheer terror. Rather be crushed by rocks than stand in the presence of this God. And the God of the Bible refuses to let them hide. Do you see that? He forces the meeting. He forces out sin. Why? Because the God of the Bible always uncovers sin. He never lets it stay hidden. Every single sin He will reveal. He will always force the encounter. He will always force this, this, this confrontation before His presence. So, look at verse 9, and thir- 9 through 13. He's confronted them, and now you're going to see God begin to interrogate the sinner. Both of them. In verses 9 through 13. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So he's interrogating them. They sinned against him. He forces a confrontation and he begins to interrogate them. Now, here's where the mercy of God laces in with the judgment of God. Because, listen to this. The God of the Bible would have been perfectly just to terminate Adam and Eve the moment that that fruit hit their stomach. He could have crushed them into the ground in that moment and been perfectly just. So he's interrogating them here, but he has not terminated. He could have detonated them into a million pieces, right? But he's interrogating them. This is a picture of his mercy in the midst of this judgment. This is a picture of God the Father seeking out these wayward children. Okay? Or, or God the Shepherd going after the lost sheep. I want, to, I want you to see this in the middle of this encounter. He doesn't terminate them. He interrogates them. And what he does in verses 9 through 13 is he pierces, he pierces them with three questions. Okay? And these questions are like a hammer blow from God. He, he, he wants them to give an account for what they've done. So the first thing he asks Adam, he's, he's walking up, forcing this encounter. He says, Where are you? Where are you? Now, there's a couple of different ways to think about this, okay? A um, couple of different unhelpful ways to think about this. What is God doing with these questions? 
What is his what is his end goal? What is his aim when he says, Where are you? Do we really think that God is after literal information? Do we really think that the God of the Bible wants Adam to say, Over here, fifth tree on the right, right here. Here I am. Okay? That's not what, what the point the point of the question is not God for God's sake. It's not giving God information. The point of these questions is for the sake of man. And what God is doing, these questions, he, with these questions, He's trying to provoke the man and the woman to a confession of sin. To a confession of sin. But instead, we see this play out that the man and the woman will do everything but confess their sin. Right? And so, the picture of the first eight verses and then now. The ones who are so willing to, to rebel against this God. Adam, who eyes wide open, walks into rebellion against this God. So willing to rebel against God. Is so unwilling to own his sin in God's presence. He refuses to confess his sin to God. What does he do instead? He plays the victim card. And he blames someone else for his sin. Does that sound familiar to you? This still happens all around us. Okay? The victim card. And in our twisted, sinful minds, we really believe that playing this victim card is going is to cause us to evade moral accountability before God. And so it is pervasive in our culture. You could call our culture a therapeutic culture. Okay? And that man is not man the criminal, man is man the victim. And, and man does bad things, why? Because bad things happen to man. Man is a product of his environment. He's a victim. Okay? That's exactly what Adam is doing in the garden. He, he, God is trying to provoke him to sin. And what, what's the first words out of his mouth? The woman. The woman. He's blaming her. The same one that he praised God for in Genesis chapter 2. Launches into praise about, at last... He's now taken the same gift of God. He literally chunks her under the bus before God. This is the sin. And you know how he finishes that sentence? He says, the woman whom you gave me. He's upped it like a million times in, in there because not only is he blaming his wife for his sin, he has now laid his sin at the feet of God Himself. God, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. This is the victim card in the presence of God. She basically does the exact same thing. God confronts her for her sin. She says, Satan made me do it. You ever heard anybody say that? The devil made me do it. Rooted in the Garden of Eden. Okay, From the very beginning, they try to evade God's judgment by blaming their sin on someone else. And if you are tempted to do this, I just want to warn you, it will not turn out any better for you than it turned out for them. These excuses don't fly before God. They never will. Okay? So God forces this encounter. Man begins to make excuses for his sin. And then God has had enough. And in verse 14, God is about to, to give us His judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and on the man. This is His response to sin. This is God the righteous judge rendering His verdict. Verse 14 through verse 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God's judgment starts on the serpent. God judges the serpent first. And God's judgment on the serpent is unique because there's no mercy here. There is no mercy from God on this serpent. God, God opens His mouth and pronounces a curse on Satan this is a, de a decree of doom with no hope of salvation, no hope of redemption. A curse from the mouth of God. And this is twofold. In 14 and 15, the curse is twofold. 14, the curse is pronounced on the actual snake in the Garden of Eden. And then in verse 15, the language moves past the snake to Satan himself who is possessing the snake in the Garden of Eden. And so God's judgment on the serpent is humiliation. The serpent will be humiliated in verse 14. And the serpent will be destroyed in verse 15. Now we're going to take some time on these verses. Okay, We're going to take some time on this. Dust. We'll start in verse 14. God, God His judgment involves dust. This, the serpent will eat dust all the days of His life. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I'll just tell you, I don't know a lot about um, biology, okay? But Satan's, uh, the snakes don't literally eat dirt, okay? This is not literal, that their diet will be to eat dirt all the days of their life, okay? This is symbolic. What God is saying here is symbolic, okay? This is the language of humiliation. And when God says, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, you will be humiliated all the days of your life. That's the point here. Listen to Micah seven seventeen. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. God is judging Satan and saying, you will be humiliated before me. You will lick the dust before me. Okay, And so here's the picture for us. Every time we see a slithering snake... In God's creation. That is supposed to be a symbolic reminder for us that God has humiliated Satan. This, this Satan, this, this spirit being that possessed uh, the snake in Genesis 3, God has humiliated him. Okay, listen to Psalm 72, verse 9. It says, May the tribes, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. You see this. This is Satan will be humiliated. Okay? All the way to final destruction in verse 15, Satan will be humiliated. Everything that he tries to reach out and accomplish against God, his plans will be perpetually frustrated by God. And he will be humiliated over and over and over again until he's finally crushed by God. Verse 15 moves past the snake and now addresses Satan himself. This judgment in verse 15 is a direct judgment and it's a prophecy of Satan's ultimate destruction. Praise God for this. Okay? This is, by far, this is the most important verse in chapter 3. Okay? And let's just stick it right up there. This 
is among the most important verses in the entire Bible. So we're going to spend some time here asking God to teach us about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. All right, there are three different aspects that I want to show you in this verse. Three different applications that happen. And this is called the proto-evangel okay, throughout church history. And what that means is proto-first, evangel gospel. This is the first flash of God's glorious promise that He's about to accomplish in human history. Genesis 3.15. So let's listen up and let's learn. The first aspect, the first, second, and third, they're going to be the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of verse 15. It'll be those three stanzas. Okay, So the first aspect is this. God's judgment on the serpent is going to start with enmity. With enmity. Okay, this is a judgment from God on Satan. And what that means is that the first thing that God does is He breaks this unholy alliance between the woman and the serpent. You remember that? Back in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, Satan deceived Eve into following him. They, they were brought into this wicked alliance. And the first thing that God does is He puts enmity there. And that's a term of warfare, deadly warfare. Intense hatred is going to be between the woman and the serpent. Okay? And you need to understand this. What's new about that? What's new about what God did there? It is not Satan's hatred of the woman. And it's not his warfare towards the woman. Okay? What's new at the beginning of verse 15 is that the God of Scripture places a hatred in the heart of the woman for the serpent. Who was once her ally is now her enemy. And this is a judgment from God. He breaks that unholy alliance. And now there's a hatred in the heart of the woman against Satan. Going forward, this woman will not be Satan's ally. She will be Satan's enemy. They will be enemies. Okay? That's the original generation. That's the literal woman in the garden. Then move to the second aspect in the middle of verse 15. Okay? This enmity that was placed between the woman and Satan is going to carry over into successive generations. Okay? And, and that same enmity that marked that first generation is going to be passed down to, every, to their offspring. It's going to be passed on to all generations. Okay, what's happening here? The word offspring there is in the singular. Okay? The word offspring is in the singular. And this is used as a collective singular to describe two different groups in humanity. Please pay attention. Okay? The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent are two different groups of, hum of human beings, of, hu of humanity. Okay? People call this the two humanities that come out of the Garden of Eden, the righteous and the wicked. Okay? And this enmity is going to mark this perpetual enmity between the righteous and the wicked. There's going to be a spiritual struggle to the end of time. Okay? It's going to be passed down. This is a judgment from God on the serpent. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. I want you to listen for two groups of people here. Okay? These are the two offspring. These, co these collective groups of humanity. Listen for them. 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This perpetual conflict is going to mark the righteous and the wicked to the end of time. Listen to Galatians 4.29. Just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So the writer of Galatians looks back on this conflict that happened in the book of Genesis, and he pulls it into the real time when the letter to Galatians is written. And this conflict has been occurring from Genesis all the way to the book of Galatians, between those who are born of God and between those who are children of Satan. This is the enmity. Okay? And then you come to the third aspect at the end of verse 15. Third aspect. This is, this is the main thrust of the proto-euangelion. The, the, the first gospel in Scripture. So listen close. At the end of verse 15, this enmity that's, that, that continues, it's marked by one final climactic moment. And here the verse shifts. From, we're not talking about collective singular groups of people anymore. We're talking about a single individual male. uses the word he at the end of verse 15. Okay, Now all the focus is on a single individual male. And what's he going to do? He's going to descend from the line of woman to, to deliver a death blow to the serpent himself. We're not talking about the offspring of the serpent anymore, like the middle of verse 15. We're talking, the one to be crushed is Satan himself. And so God finishes this judgment of Satan. He's looking directly at Satan. And he's saying, a human being is going to be born from the line of the woman. And he is going to crush the serpent. This is the climax of God's judgment on the serpent. The serpent will be completely destroyed. And I want you to notice how this happens. How's it going to go down? Both are going to be struck. Or your, your Bible might say bruised or crushed. Same Hebrew word. Okay? Both are going to be crushed. But look at the location of the blow. Okay? One is going to be struck or bruised on the heel. That's going to be a temporary wound. And the other is going to be crushed or struck or bruised on the head. And that is going to be a mortal wound blow. Okay, this is a prophecy. Three chapters in the Bible of Jesus' work on the cross. And so we have the privilege, praise the living God, that we get to look back and read this. And this is not a prophecy in the sense that we long for this to happen. We look back and we praise the living God. This happened. Okay? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of the woman. He descends from the line of Eve. And what does He do? What does He do? He is bruised for our transgressions. And He was struck with what looked like a mortal wound on the cross. He was laid in the dust of death. And it looked like victory for the serpent, right? And then what happens next? Jesus Christ, on the three days after He was dead, He comes flying out of the tomb, resurrected from the dead, clothed in all authority in heaven, in heaven and earth. And He crushes the serpent. He, he, he crushes Him in the dirt. This is, this is the work of Jesus. Three chapters in the Bible. Can we even get our mind around this? God has been showing us, showing humanity what He would do in His Son. 
from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Hebrews 2.14, through death, He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus destroyed the serpent through His death on the cross. This is the first gospel in Scripture. The first flash of this glorious promise. And here's the message of verse 15. Okay, If we don't know anything else of what verse 15 says, it says this, Satan will temporarily cripple the seed of the woman, but Christ will eternally crush Satan himself. Satan will be trampled by the Lord Jesus. And that's what they longed for. And we look back and we say Satan was trampled by the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus triumphed over the serpent. This is the first gospel in Scripture. This fires me up. Fires me up. Now, you're Satan and you hear that judgment. What do you think his first thought is? I'm about to crush this seed of this offspring. This seed of the woman. I'm going to crush him. He thinks he's going to crush my head. I'm going to crush him. I'm going to, I'm going to wound this one. But, God leaves him in the dark as to which offspring it's going to be. He doesn't know. Okay? He doesn't know who the head crusher is going to be. He thinks it's going to be the firstborn of Eve. Right? Named what? Abel. And so what does Satan do? He has him murdered. You see that? He's trying to crush the seed, the one who's going to destroy him. Then what is God? What is the God of Scripture to? The God of grace, God the Redeemer. He, Eve has a thirdborn named Seth. And what does God do? He raises up a chosen family through the line of Seth. And then a major story, a major plot in the Old Testament is Satan furiously, full of murder and full of hate, try to murder and attack this chosen line, the line that is to bring forth the Christ. Okay? And then what does God do? Through all of these, God is faithful to preserve the seed, to protect His people. And then the Lord Jesus is born of the woman and crushes the head of the serpent. From the very beginning. You understand this. You understand a lot of the Word of God. You understand a lot of the Bible. Verse 16. This is the, the punishment on the serpent. Verse 16 is the punishment on the woman. And I'll go fast here. God makes her feel the effects of sin in the areas that should have been uniquely rewarding to her as a woman. Okay? The areas of motherhood and the areas of marriage. He makes her feel the effects of sin right there. Okay? That is her judgment. From God. The Hebrew word for pain that she is to fulfill, that she is to feel, it means physical pain and emotional pain. And so what this means is that the, the focus, the first focus is on the birth of children. Okay? The birth of children will now be marked by intense physical pain. But this judgment extends beyond the birth of children and covers the whole child rearing process. Okay? Child rearing will now be marked by Pain, emotional pain. And here's the point. The joys of motherhood will now be mixed with pain from God. This is her judgment for sin. The birth of children in this world is marked by intense physical pain. And then they're rearing emotional pain. And what this means, okay, for and, until as long as there is sin, it will be a painful thing to birth and raise children in a sinful world. This is why, rooted, rooted in the judgment in Genesis 3. God also makes the woman feel the effects of sin in marriage, in the marriage relationship. The joys of marriage will now be mixed with a power struggle. Her desire 
will now be, instead of to be a help to her husband, her desire will now be to control her husband through manipulation. You see that? And his desire will now be to control his wife through domination. Okay? These, these are the effects of sin. This is how sinful nature will express itself. This will be the new normal in human society. This is the new normal outside of Jesus Christ. This is every one of you. You have a bend towards these things. If you are married, you have a part of you called a sinful nature that desires to control your spouse instead of love your spouse. This is rooted in our judgment from Genesis chapter 3. In verses 17 through 19, God punishes the man. Punished the serpent, punished the woman, now He's punishing the man. And just like the woman, God makes the man feel the effects of sin and the areas of life that should have been uniquely rewarding to Him. Man is punished as provider and man is punished as leader. And so think about this. He was tasked to provide, okay, to lead the family, to provide for the family. He was a worker of the ground. And God frustrates this man and He feels this man's life as provider with pain. Same Hebrew word. Physical pain, emotional pain. His work of provision will now be painful. It will be sweat and toil and labor. And there will be emotional pain attached to his work of providing. He will feel futility and vanity as he seeks to provide for his family in this cursed world. And these pains of survival and provision, they're going to last as long as there is sin. Okay? Man's work in this world is now mingled with futility. God also punishes Adam as leader. You remember that Adam is the, is, he's the head of the human race. And what happens to Adam happened to us. Remember that? Okay? Adam's job was to take dominion of the earth for God. He was to lead out in this. He was the representative of the human race. And so as the representative, when he sinned, when the representative sinned, God cursed the entire creation. You need to know that the Bible teaches that. God cursed this entire creation because Adam, the head of humanity, rebelled against him. Listen to Isaiah 24, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. That means you walk around and breathe. You don't breathe and live in paradise anymore. You live and breathe on a cursed earth. We live on a cursed earth. This is our judgment from the beginning. And then in verse 19, God tells Adam that he will return to, to dust. So this man has not evaded death. We agree with that? All, all, this, all God has done is delay death. Adam will return to dust. This is physical death. This is part of his punishment for sin. And what happens to Adam happens to us. Do you know why you will die? Because this punishment is on all humanity in Adam. In Adam, all die. So God promises him that he's going to return to dust. But I want you to remember, okay, we're going to talk about something. This is the less known part of Genesis 3. Okay? That these judgments from God toward the man and toward the woman, they're filled with mercy from God. I want you to look at this verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. 
God's punishment on the man and the woman, they are designed to do something. God wants them to do something. They're not just meant to punish them judicially. They're designed by God to work a purpose in their life. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. Listen close. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. I'm going to read that again. Because of Him who subjected it in hope. That verse just told you that the God of the Bible did what He did in Genesis chapter 3. He did it in hope that something would happen. What? Finish the verse. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So I want you to see this. Okay? There's, there's mercy laced in these judgments. God delays the death sentence of man and woman. Okay? It was supposed to happen on the day that they sinned. They surely died. They were to die and they were to face God in judgment and be forever punished in hell before God the righteous judge. But God delays that death sentence. Subjects us all to a measure of futility so that we would see our sin and return to the Lord before it's too late. The measure of mercy that God exposes sinners in this world to is merciful. This is a merciful work of God. Because it doesn't even come close with comparing to the suffering and misery of eternal judgment that our sins deserve. And so the God of mercy, He's delayed the death sentence for every single person in this room. You deserved and you earned and you merited the moment that you sinned to be crushed into the ground, but He allows you to live. Why? He allows you to live. He's delaying the death sentence to give us time to repent so that we may escape the second death, eternal judgment in hell forever. This is God's plan. He did it in hope that there would be some children of God in this world. Okay, So His judgments in Genesis 3, have you ever thought about this? That the pain, the futility, and the suffering are actually mercy from God. He is trying to get your attention. I want you to see this. God took marriage, marriage relationship, God took the parent-child relationship, God took vocation in this world, and He infected them all with a measure of futility. Why? Why? Because more than anything else in God's creation, these are the things that we would try to replace God with. And He has made the things that we would try to replace Him with, He has made them with a measure of futility. And He does this to frustrate us with our false gods. So we feel a measure of pushback and nothing in all of creation can take His place. He set His world up like this to get our attention. This is what happened to King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained in all the sun. You see what he said? I have everything that you can imagine. And it doesn't even matter a little bit. Why? Because the man lost God. He doesn't have his God and he feels it in his bones that nothing can take this God's place. Nothing can take this God's place. Life without God 
is supposed to feel futile. It's supposed to feel empty. It's supposed to. This is God's design. It's supposed to be painful because nothing can take His place. So that we would return to the only one that can satisfy us. Marriage relationship can't. Parent-child relationship can't satisfy us. Our vocations in life can't satisfy us. Nothing in all this creation can satisfy us. Only our Creator. And so the suffering in this world is designed by God to humble you. To remind you, I am a sinner and these are the effects of my sin. And I need God's salvation. I need God's forgiveness. And that measure of futility that He has subjected this world to is to make us to long for the restored fellowship with this God. I want to be with God. I want that face-to-face fellowship that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Nothing in all this creation can take His place. That's the design of suffering and futility in this world. It is a merciful thing from God. Okay, Merciful thing from God. You'll never hear that on, on the news. You'll never hear that. Okay, You always hear, why does God allow this to happen? And the question really is, how in the world could He not execute them on the spot? He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to get them to repent before they suffer the second death, the final death, eternal death in hell. This is His rescue plan. This is part of His design. The suffering and pain would awaken us to sinfulness and our need for salvation. Okay, So let's finish up with a look at God's mercy. We've already seen that His judgments are laced with mercy, but I want to show you God's mercy in Genesis 3. The only hope for salvation for humanity has always been the promised one of Genesis 3.15. Do you catch that? Jesus, the promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent, He has always been the only way back to the Father. From the very beginning, there has been one way of salvation. Jesus, ever since the Garden of Eden. And notice back in verse 15 that our deliverance from this offspring of woman, notice how it's going to come to us. All of our hope and all of our salvation is going to come to us with a bruised servant of God. He's going to be bruised. He's going to be crushed. And this crushing and this bruising of the seed of the woman is our only hope of salvation. Okay, This is a prophecy of His bloody death on the cross in our place in Genesis chapter 3. Isaiah 53, it reminds you this morning that Jesus is crushing, that the bruising that He suffered, it was for you. He did that for your sake. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. So that bruising that He endured should have been yours. You should have been the crushed one when Jesus was crushed in our place. He bears the full weight of the curse of God that we deserve. And then Psalm 22.15 says that God lays him in the dust of death. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Adam's judgment, to to dust he will return. And Jesus was laid in the dust of death. He bears the full weight of the curse that our sins deserve. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus. His death completely removes this curse. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. This is the promise of the Gospel, that He bears our curse and He makes all things new. He is the one. We can't knock the fruit out of their hand, right? But He is the one that radically shifts and reverses all the effects of sin in Genesis chapter 3. And He makes all things new. And He tells us that these words are faithful and true. This is the Gospel. This is the glorious Gospel of Jesus. But this is only Gospel. This is only good news. Not for automatically for everybody in the world. This is only good news if you believe, if you receive it. Did the man and the woman believe the Gospel in Genesis chapter 3? Yes, they did. Verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. Now that, brothers and sisters, that is a strange, strange, strange thing to follow a death sentence. Okay? Verse 19, You are going to die. Verse 20, I'm going to call her name Life. She's going to be the mother of life. You would think everything in that moment was he was going to name her. You're the mother of death. You wrecked the entire world, right? But it's the exact opposite. The death sentence and in the very next verse of Scripture. She is the mother of life. And what that shows us is that they laid a hold of this promise in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, they did. Yes, they heard the death sentence in verse 19. Yes, they did. But you know what else they heard? That there's going to be some offspring that spring forth from this woman. And we're going to live and not die. And there's going to be this promised one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. So I'm going to name you the mother of life. Because they're laying hold of the promise of God. This is a picture of faith. And this is what God demands of every single one of us. If we are to receive this good news of His gospel. We have to believe it. We have to believe it. In the midst of promised judgment, we have to lay hold of the promise of God. Lay hold of the work of Jesus Christ. We have to believe His promise. Before we close, I want to cut off a problem in Genesis 3. Somebody might say this, a mocker. Surely nobody in this room. But you know, those mockers, right? Somebody might say, you know what? I hear you quoting the Bible and talking about the Bible, but wait just a second, because I've got to tell you something. God said, the God of that book said that on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And God's word is wrong because they didn't die. I've had someone tell me that before. God's word is wrong because they did not die on the day that they ate. Nobody died in Genesis 3. That's the mocker. And I want to tell you, wrong answer. Okay? Look closely at verse 21. That is the wrong answer. They said nobody died? Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the first record of death in all of God's creation. God Himself slaughters an innocent animal, an innocent victim, instead of the sinners. Genesis chapter 3, this is a shadow and a picture of substitutionary atonement. That the, the Lamb dies instead of us and He dies the bloody death that we should have died. Genesis 3, and we have these pictures of Jesus on His cross. 
This, this, this sacrifice of God, these garments that God makes, this points forward to the one true sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as the Lamb of God. And here's the, here's, here's the takeaway for you. Substitutionary atonement has always been the only way for sinners to be forgiven. The righteousness of God, the holiness of God demands death for sin. You need a substitute. And He needs to bring His, His perfect life because there's going to be a bloody death in your place. And so the God of Scripture, what do we know about Him? He is God the righteous judge. He demands a bloody payment for sin from an innocent substitute. And here's, here's, here's what you got to know. Deep in the core of your being, you or your substitute will die for your sin. There will be a death for your sin. Either your sins will be laid on the Lord Jesus Christ and Him slaughtered in your place, or you will be slaughtered for your rebellions against God. This is the, this is the substitutionary atonement that shadowed in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve believe God's promise. And notice what God does. God responds to their faith. Okay? In verse 21. And they believe God's promise. And the Lord God takes these garments and He covers them. He covers them. It's a beautiful picture. He covers them with garments of grace. The ones that, that ran from Him. What did the God of Scripture do? He pursues the ones that run from Him. He goes after the ones that hide from Him, the guilty and the shameful. He comes to them with glorious gospel promises and He covers them with garments of grace. Garments of grace. Their fig leaves are stripped off, right? All their, their attempts to make themselves fit for God's presence, God removes them and covers them with these garments. This is who... God has always been. He goes after the sinner. He's the God of all grace. He is God the Redeemer. From the Garden of Eden, we see this about God. There is no one beyond His grace. There is no one too filthy for these garments to cover over all your sin. This is who He is from the very beginning. Behold the Redeemer. Behold His glorious Gospel. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Eden. Yes, it is the story of the beginning of sin. But this is the story of the beginning of God's salvation. There is none like Him. And you have no hope besides Him. This is the God of glory. God of grace. Who is the God of the Bible? The God of all grace. And I plead with you today that you would respond to the finished work of Jesus. This is your only hope. Do you know that the first doctrine, the first truth that is ever confronted and challenged in the Word of God is that God will not judge you. You're going to be fine. Do you know that? This is literally, literally the oldest trick in the book that you feel like you're going to die and you're going to be fine. But the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that when you die and appear before this God, your only hope is to be covered with these garments of grace. Your only hope is to be covered with these garments of grace and they can only be yours through faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, church, I want to remind you today, I want to remind us today that the seed of the woman has come and He came out of the tomb and He crushed our strong enemy. He destroyed Satan. 
Do you know this? Do you know that we share in the victory of Jesus over our strong enemy? Revelation 12, verse 11 says that we overcome Satan. By what? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We enter into this victory and Jesus has shared this victory over Satan with us. We triumph with Christ through faith. And I'm reminding you today that because Jesus was bruised for you, you are the ones that are covered with the garments of grace, just like you see to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. These are beautiful garments of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when God sees you, that's what He sees. He doesn't see a naked, shameful one any longer. You are covered in these beautiful garments by grace. You can't boast in it at all. You did nothing to, nothing to earn, nothing to merit it. All we can do is boast in what God has done for us in Christ. So we praise His holy name today. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Here's what I want to leave you with. This is not, this gospel of Jesus, this is not just a fact for you to know. Oh yeah, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. Check. Fact. Got that? Next one. Tell me something else that's mine. It's not just a fact for you to know. Okay? It's, it's, it's a beautiful truth for you to glory in. This is yours in Christ Jesus that you would glory in it. That you would wallow around in it in this world. That you would rejoice in Christ. That you would wear these garments of grace and that you would praise your God. So I'm encouraging you today that we wouldn't play games with this gospel. That we wouldn't play games of coldness with this gospel. But that we would lay hold of what is ours in Jesus, and that we would experience this grace, this glorious gospel, this gospel of the glory of Christ. Let's go after this. Isaiah 61.10, and we're finished. Isaiah 61.10. What would that look like in your life? Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we praise Your holy name today, Lord Jesus. And we ask, God, that You would push out, Lord, every false Christ from our mind and all of our idols that we run to. And that You would exalt Yourself as the God of all grace and that You would exalt Your Gospel and that it will have no rivals in our life, Lord. God, we ask You to purify us today. Holy Spirit, we ask You to magnify the work of Christ in our life. Lord, we, we want to be disciples of Jesus that love You above all things. And we ask for Your help, Lord. And we praise Your holy name today, Lord, for what You've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, Lord, this is our prayer. Amen.